thank you very much for, for being here, especially on such a nice afternoon on uh, a spring day in Charlottesville. We know how uh, irresistible those are. Uh, for those who don't know me, or yeah, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Kim Ford Masrui uh, on the faculty here, and uh, I uh, requested from Professor Johnson if, uh, that I could introduce Tim, uh, and I am just thrilled to do so. I should say, which I say with great pride, to introduce Professor Lovelace. Uh, professor uh, Tim Lovelace is an associate professor of law at Indiana University Maurer School of Law, where he's also uh, since 2012, where he's also an affiliated faculty member of the history department. His expertise is in legal history, civil rights, human rights, and constitutional law. He teaches uh, race, American society, and the law, as well as a course in advanced constitutional law. At this point, I would typically recount his uh, educational credentials, which I will do so, but I want to begin by saying my first impression of Tim was when he had only a high school diploma to his name, uh, and that was in uh, the spring of 2003. There was a, a student-led march against racial hatred, including a branch that began here at the law school uh, that convened on the rotunda, and uh, there were several speakers uh, speaking out in favor of uh, racial equality uh, on the steps of the rotunda, and uh, this college student named Tim spoke. I couldn't see him. I'm sight impaired, but I could hear him. And I recall quite distinctly him talking about his racial experiences as a college student and how impressed I was by him and wondered, uh, uh, who is this guy? Uh, I expect uh, he'll go great places. And uh, thankfully, uh, he did choose to come here uh, for law school. And uh, you know the phrase, a double who, someone has uh, two degrees. Well, Tim is also... Actually, he's a quadruple who. Uh, he has his BA from the politics department, earned in 2003. Then he got his JD from here in 2006. A master's in history from uh, UVA history department in 2007. And his PhD in history from UVA in 2012. Uh, during law school, uh, Lovelace was the Oliver Hill Scholar, as well as BALSA president also an editor on the Virginia Sports and Entertainment Law Journal. He won the Bracewell and Patterson Best Oralist Award. Uh, and at graduation, he received the Thomas Marshall Miller Prize, which is one of just a few prizes awarded at graduation that are based on an, a vote of the entire faculty. Uh, we call them inside the Wonderfulness Awards uh, because they're for outstanding contributions to uh, scholarship and collegiality uh, at the law school. During his PhD program here, he was a referee of the Virginia Science Journal. He was a fellow at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, and he was the inaugural uh, Armstead Robinson Fellow at the Carter G. Woodson Institute for African American and uh, African Studies. Uh, Lovelace has pub published several articles. Uh, I'll just include the name of one that's particularly relevant from for today, The Jurisprudence of Martin Luther King from Brown to Cooper, and he's currently working on a book entitled The World is on Our Side, The Black Freedom Movement and the U.S. Origins of the U.S. Uh, Race Convention. Uh, I am not surprised, but uh, very much pleased to learn that in his short time at Indiana University, he has won the Indiana University Trustees Teaching Award. 
Uh, let me return to my own experiences with Professor Lovelace. Uh, after coming here, he became my student in uh, Race and the Law, when unfortunately he was also on crutches. I shouldn't have reminded him today. Uh, uh, he's uh, quite athletic. Um, uh, and, uh, but anyway, I was so uh, taken by him and uh, rewarded by his participation that I asked him to be my research assistant. I was uh, impressed again, so in my capacity as director for the Center of the Study of Race and Law, I asked him to be my assistant director, uh, although I should really call him my co-director. We co-taught a course on advanced race and law projects, uh, and we co-organized a conference here in 2010 on commemorating the 50th anniversary of the sit-in movement, uh, and we were such co-organizers and co-presiders that the law professor attendees just referred to us in the singular, uh, Tim and Kim. Uh, like, where's Tim and Kim? Ask Tim and Kim. Thank you, Tim and Kim. Uh, <laughs> um, now, of course, uh, he is my colleague. Uh, but most importantly, uh, along the way, Tim and uh, his beautiful and extremely smart wife, Daisy, uh, have become good friends of me and my wife, uh, Kay, who uh, regrets that she couldn't be here today. Uh, but we also cannot wait to meet baby Lovelace, who is on the way. Uh, so it gives me, again, just great personal uh, and professional pleasure to introduce Tim Lovelace, who will speak about kingmaking, Brown versus Board of Education, and the rise of a racial savior. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kim, for the really warm introduction. Um, thanks so much, Alex, for uh, the invitation here. It's just so good to see so many really wonderful faces, my former professors, um, and it's always just good to be back at home. In March of 1965, after the Selma to Montgomery pilgrimage, Martin Luther King gave a speech entitled, Our God is Marching On, which serves as the basis for the university's commemoration of the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. As King and thousands of others were fighting for what would become the Voting Rights Act of 1965, King told the audience, quote, segregation is on its deathbed in Alabama. And the only thing uncertain about it is how costly segregationists and Governor Wallace will make the funeral. But this was not the first time that King had seen segregation on its deathbed. For example, nearly a decade earlier, in a 1956 speech entitled Desegregation and the Future, a speech completely devoted to Brown versus Board of Education, King had argued that the Supreme Court's decision in 1954 had put segregation on its deathbed, and that the only thing uncertain was how costly proponents of massive resistance to Brown, not George Wallace's troops in Selma, would make that funeral. During the 1956 program, King sat next to Bill Fleming, a leader in the Clarendon County Improvement Association, the rural hamlet that inspired Briggs v. Elliott, the South Carolina case co consolidated in the Brown litigation. The program was devoted to Judge Wadey's Waring, the former federal judge in South Carolina that dissented in Briggs and declared that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. And King was introduced that day by Dr. Kenneth Clark, 
the Columbia University trained psychologist best known for authoring the controversial study that became footnote 11 in Brown. Clark introduced King as a Moses, a Christ, and Gandhi, all in one. And he stated, I believe that Dr. King has the, has the potential for truly great leadership, not just leadership for, for the American Negro, but I believe that he has potential for the leadership of the spiritual, ethical, and moral side of the American people who are sorely in need of such leadership. The King that we get to know in 1965, right after the Selma to Montgomery march, had developed much of his identity around Brown versus Board of Education, that the rhetorical flourishes that we know so well were perfected in the mid-1950s, fighting for Brown's promise, and these would last him for a lifetime. So today, I'll explore the role of law, and more specifically, the role of Brown, in springboarding a relatively unknown Southern preacher into an internationally renowned civil rights leader, what some journalists called the most outstanding proponent of the new school of Negro leadership, and by the most sensationalized accounts, a messiah. The close relationship between Brown and King's canonization might come as a surprise to some readers of the foundational text on Brown. For example, in The Hollow Hope, author Gerald Rosenberg asks, quote, was King motivated to act by the Brown court? From an examination of King's thinking, the answer appears to be no. Rosenberg continued, King rooted his beliefs in Christian theology and Gandhian nonviolence, not constitutional doctrine. His attitude to the court, far from a source of inspiration, was one of strategic disfavor. For Rosenberg, Brown, although celebrated as one of the most important cases, if not the most important case of the 20th century of the court, Brown left African-Americans with little more than an empty promise of racial equality. The court's ruling, after all, did not desegregate schools in much of the former Confederacy, and in fact, spawned massive resistance. And so if we measure Brown's success through things like linear causal chains leading to the end of racial segregation in public schools, or even the end of Plessy's racial compact, then scholars like Rosenberg might be right that the court's decision in Brown was ultimately a failure. However, if socio-legal scholars measure Brown's success in the same ways that Dr. King measured Brown's success during this period, we might come to different conclusions. That for activists like King, the Warren Court's landmark decision on May 17, 1954, quickly transformed into something more, much more, than a decision declaring that segregated public schools were inherently unequal. Brown helped to redefine the relationships between law, identity, and racial spokesmanship. In Ken, Mac, in Ken Mac's trailblazing work, Representing the Race, Mac explains law's role in constituting the racial identities of leading African-American lawyers. My, my talk today inserts non-lawyers within this discussion. In other words, while civil rights lawyers like Thurgood Marshall styled themselves as representatives of the race by primarily working through courts to implement Brown. My talk will demonstrate that Brown became critical to the discourse, the plans, and the identities of non-lawyers who were positioning themselves to be at the race's vanguard in the mid-1950s. The generation of civil rights leaders that emerged in the post-Brown years 
often questioned the national NAACP's strategies, but then cited the NAACP and the court's 1954 decisions as inspirations as they rose to national and international prominence. And so becoming a national civil rights leader in the 1950s meant managing a unique group of constituencies. Brown gave black activists like King the legal and political language to negotiate the demands of civil rights leadership during the Cold War. And here I'll talk about five primary audiences that King spoke to. First, and most obviously, King spoke directly to the concerns of the everyday African Americans that packed the pews and auditoriums around the country to hear him speak. In the years after Brown, King argued that lawyers should play an instrumental role in the civil rights movement. But he also sought to find ways that everyday people might participate in their own liberation. Nothing in this period illustrated this more than the Montgomery bus boycott. Remember, there were only two African-American litigators in Montgomery at this time. At the start of the boycott, courtrooms were a rarefied space where only a select few might participate in the struggle for racial equality. But here we have King, a non-lawyer, seeking to democratize the movement, facing an incredible dilemma as he attempts to represent the race. On one hand, Brown was the civil rights decision of all time. And King understood that the NAACP's litigation was an indispensable tool for legal and social change. On the other hand, King had deep criticisms of relying on courts as the only or even the primary vehicle for social change, that litigation was not a substitute for participatory democracy. And so King skillfully negotiates this tension through a a nuanced approach to the role of law in social change. His sermons emphasized that Brown was both God-ordained and an inspiration for his brand of civil rights work. Such a perspective gave him a racially authentic and deeply democratic way of framing his project of racial insurgency. Brown, he believed, gave him the moral, the political, the legal high ground in the debate over segregation. It allowed him to speak truth to power with Christian gracefulness. At the same time, it allowed African Americans in Montgomery to live the social gospel now. That African Americans did not have to wait for some cloudless day where the Sabbath hath no end, or where northern lawyers came down to the South to initiate an attack on Jim Crow. That local people might start their own movements on their own terms, and that lawyers might support rather than supplant mass politics. As King told the audience in 1956 in Desegregation in the Future, he said, Yes, we must depend on law. Yes, we must depend on courts. But in the final analysis, the Negro himself must assume the basic responsibility for no other reason than laws cannot enforce themselves. Segregation confronted its legal death on May 17, 1954, but it's still factually alive. The Negro himself must do something about this. Men and women on that day in 1956, as they would do for years to come, stood to their feet and applause. The second audience that King spoke to was anti-communist. And there's this growing literature of scholarship on Brown as a federal response to the Cold War, that the Justice Department, supported by the State Department, submitted a brief in Brown, urging the Warren Court to view the case within the context of the struggle between freedom and tyranny. And so for many scholars writing in this field, they argue that 
the Cold War was unquestionably a boon to the civil rights movement. However, far less of the scholarship has explored the Cold War's anti-communist imperative and how it destroyed America's black left, that the Cold War marginalized many who were considered, quote, too radical and ushered in an era of racial liberalism. Nothing demonstrated this more, perhaps, than the treatment of W.E.B. Du Bois, right, the towering black intellectual, right, the Pan-Africanist, the founder of the NAACP. When Du Bois strays too close, allegedly, to the communist line, right, he's kicked out of the organization he helped to found four decades earlier. And so King fends off charges during this moment of racial liberalism that his approach to civil rights was communist-inspired by linking his activism to the court's anti-communist opinion in Brown. Third, King invoked Brown to negotiate regional culture wars and speak directly to Southern nationalists. Unlike Roy Wilkins, Thurgood Marshall, A. Philip Randolph, King lived in the South. Racism and anti-communism dogged civil rights activism in the mid-20th century. But remember where Dexter Avenue Baptist Church is, literally in the shadows of the Alabama State Capitol, right? the, home of the, the former home of the Confederacy. And so King is forced to weather more potent streams of both racism and anti-communism. The racial politics of the Cold War posed particular problems for desegregationists in the US South because the fear of foreign ideologies that became so central to US Cold War policy dovetailed nicely in many ways, with Southern nationalism. Southern nationalists had long held that African Americans were content with their lot during slavery and during Jim Crow until they came in contact with foreign ideologies. And these foreign ideologies came in many forms. The words of abolitionists, carpetbaggers, unionists, socialists, communists, atheists, and the NAACP. Right, that these are outside agitators, racial interlopers that hope to alter the Southern way of life. And so King confronts this matrix of oppression right, through challenging right, the concepts of insider rule, anti-communism, and theocracy in really interesting ways. Most obviously, he names his organization that he founds in 1957, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But in his speeches, in his writings, in his interviews, he rendered Southern resistance to Brown as both un-American and unchristian. Fourth, Brown provided King with a language that allowed him to leverage the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court to appeal to government officials and everyday citizens who valued judicial review, federal supremacy, and the rule of law. King often praised federal courts for their commitment to desegregation but he was well aware of the limitations of courts in ending massive resistance to Brown. And so it became crucial for King to get others in the federal government, in particular, involved in implementing Brown, pulling again from 1956. So often in the area of civil rights, it seems that the judicial branch of the government is fighting the battle alone. And we feel that the executive and legislative branches have been all too silent and too stagnant in their moves to implement and enforce the Supreme Court's decisions. With the, with the popularity of the president and his tremendous power and influence, just a word from him could do a great deal to ease the situation, calm emotions, and give Southern white liberals something to stand on, even if it's just a quote 
something to say. Moreover, Brown expanded the civil rights lexicon, allowing King to appropriate concepts from the NAACP's briefs in Brown and the court's opinion and ask new legal questions about continuing forms of segregation. In other words, King used Brown as a legal, as a legal yardstick to measure Americans' commitment to U.S. values, particularly at a time where U.S. values were allegedly under attack by subversive forces. Finally, King used Brown to speak directly to civil rights leaders themselves. The NAACP was proud of its decision, and rightfully so. But they felt, the national NAACP, they felt that the NAACP and the NAACP alone should guide the implementation of Brown. King was a non-lawyer who had very different ideas about who could and who should apply Brown's logic to other facets of American public life. National NAACP officials were miffed that someone so young, so naive, and someone not a national NAACP official would use Brown to become one of the newest representatives of the race. Constance Baker Motley, right, this pioneering LDF attorney, and the first African-American woman to join the federal bench, wrote in her autobiography, as King became the focus of media attention, he, he became a new source of irritation for the NAACP and the LDF. His youth and lack of experience and credentials in the civil rights field did not help. While Thurgood Marshall never attacked King or any other black leader publicly, privately Thurgood resented the new rival, whom he viewed as an upstart black Baptist minister, raising funds for his own benefit. And so here again, King faces a dilemma as he attempts to become a national civil rights leader. On one hand, he was dependent on the NAACP's resources. The Montgomery Improvement Association and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference didn't have much money and had even fewer lawyers. And on the other hand, King had deep criticisms of the NAACP's court-centered approach to legal and social change. And so King, again, negotiates this tension by publicly praising Brown for ushering in a new day and for NAACP lawyers setting a new stage in the civil rights movement. Brown offered King a language to demonstrate his fidelity to his race, to his region, and to his country. At a particular moment in American history where Americans, both black and white, northern and southern, obsessed over allegedly subversive forces in the civil rights movement. King found stardom by participating in the debates over Brown's future in ways that Brown's architects had never intended, and in ways that often drew the ire of those in the NAACP's national offices. And so, on the ground, this looks like the Montgomery bus boycott. And so in my time, in my remainder time, the remainder of my time, I'll go very quickly through King's life the Montgomery bus boycott, right? We might think about the Montgomery bus boycott as simply brown and interstate transportation. That even before African Americans in Montgomery launched their frontal attack on Jim Crow seating on the, on the city's buses, King and the MIA looked to Brown for legal and moral reassurance that they were right. On the eve of the protest, King gives this really great speech at the Holt Street Baptist Church, where he says, if we are wrong, then the Supreme Court is wrong. If we are wrong, then the Constitution is wrong. If we are wrong, then God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, then Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer that never came down to earth. This was in a black Baptist church, 
Right? Brown has to be right. If you look at the court's opinions in, Brown, in Browder v. Gale and Gale v. Browder, both opinions cite directly to Brown to overturn segregation and interstate transportation. As the boycott began to pick up steam, media outlets from around the world began to write that King seemed to have mastered the art of preaching, personified the South's new Negro, and possessed the scholarly ability to translate his prophetic faith into a coherent framework for legal and social change. These were traits that made him camera-ready and uniquely qualified to discuss the future of desegregation. King is also flying around the country racking up awards in cities like Detroit and Buffalo, Birmingham and Nashville, Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. But Thurgood Marshall read Dr. King's shine very differently. He said that the Montgomery Improvement Association's youthful president was an opportunist and, quote, a boy on a man's errand. The minister, according to Marshall, mismanaged funds and was in over his head. King himself confessed that at the beginning of the boycott, he felt like he was in over his head, and he nearly broke down. Moreover, King's often naive approach towards organizational relationships often made the situation worse. Early in the boycott, King called for a two-front battle. He said, what we really need is a new organization. Still with the NAACP's everything, but we need to make it homegrown. There was a local chapter of the NAACP. King was a dues-paying member, and so his comments seemed to confer, confirm the NAACP's suspicions that King was invested in jockeying with the NAACP for both power and prestige. Developments in Montgomery would foreshadow a pattern for years to come, that while the, while the bus protest in Montgomery was powerful, dramatizing the plight of everyday African Americans, it was Gail V. Browder, arguably, and not the direct action protest that resolved the core issue before blacks in Montgomery. Nonetheless, King got the press, the NAACP got the tab. Outside of Montgomery during the boycott year, journalists were writing that King epitomized, in the words of the Chicago Defender, quote, a new type of leader emerging in the South, one that was not an NAACP worker, but a gladiator going into battle that wears a reverse collar, a flowing robe, and carries a Bible in his hand. This new, vocal, fearless, and forthright Moses, who is leading the people out of the wilderness into the promised land, is the Negro preacher. King is logging thousands of miles in 1956 in the air, capturing the political imagination of human rights voices like Eleanor Roosevelt, receiving invitations to visit places like India from Prime Minister Nehru, and all the while, he was making very clear connections between the Cold War, the church, and Brown. On May 17, 1956, King celebrated Brown's second anniversary at the headquarters of the New York State Episcopal Diocese. Before an overflowing crowd of 12,000 people, King again rendered Brown as quintessentially American, Christian, and as a way for the United States to gain credibility in the heart in the fight for the hearts and minds of the third world. King whooped, quote, one day through a world-shaking decree by nine justices of the Supreme Court and an awakened moral conscience of many white persons of goodwill, backed up by the providence of God, the Red Sea opened and the forces of justice marched through to the other side. 
Negroes, like exploited masses across the world, are winning freedom from the Egypt of colonialism. And they are now able to move forward towards the promised land of economic security and cultural development. It is therefore fitting and proper that we assemble here, just two years after the Supreme Court's momentous decision, and praise God for his power and his greatness and his purpose. We pray that we gain the vision and the will to be his co-workers in the struggle. This is the, this is the social gospel during the Cold War, that the key battle and the global struggle for racial equality was a modern exodus that was happening in the United States. King also carried his praise for Brown and criticisms of massive resistance to the Democratic National Convention in 1956. And before the DNC's delegates, King told the audience that civil rights was not simply a moral issue, it was also a foreign policy issue. That the Southern Manifesto was tarnishing the image of American democracy abroad. King also endorsed the Powell Amendment eight years before the Powell Amendment became the basis for Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And we know that Title VI became the primary mechanism for desegregating public schools throughout the South. Weeks after the boycott ended, King traded in on his newfound celebrity, his celebrity status, and formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The SCLC was primarily composed of ministers who hoped to replicate King's success and exporting Brown in interstate transportation. The SCLC's founding meeting centered on discussion of seven working papers drafted by staffers who would play integral roles in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. People like Ella Baker, who helped to found the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and Bayard Rustin, who organized the March on Washington in 1963. Working paper number seven focused squarely on law. The title of the working paper was The Role of Law in Our Struggle. And in the paper, the SCLC's founders praised the NAACP for 46 really wonderful years of, quote, brilliantly and successfully representing Negro Americans before the courts of the land. But it continued. However, since the Supreme Court decision of May 17, 1954, a new stage has been set. While there is much legal work to be done, there is ample and convincing evidence that the center of gravity has shifted from courts to community action. We must recognize in this new period that direct action is our most potent political weapon. And throughout the working papers, you see praise for nonviolent direct action, that it makes humble, humble people noble, turns fear into courage, encouraged group pride, and created a community spirit through community sacrifice. Moreover, the formation of the SCLC sparked an intense rivalry with the NAACP. States like Alabama had banned chapters of the NAACP as part of massive resistance. Right? These are foreign corporations that are operating. And so a new generation of civil rights activists, men like King, quickly filled this organizational vacuum. In other words, King started an organization brimming with former NAACP members whose hearts and dues might now come to the SCLC rather than the NAACP. King is doubling down in many ways on the NAACP's southern troubles. Nonetheless, King attempted to smooth, smooth, over, smooth over the relationship by offering to plan 
the third anniversary of Brown, the 1957 prayer pilgrimage for freedom in Washington, D.C. This was the first major event of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The event occurred on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. It was co-planned with A. Philip Randolph and Roy Wilkins, the activists in 1957. They demanded a civil rights bill as they would do six years later. The prayer pilgrimage, in many ways, was a dress rehearsal for the March on Washington in 1963. And here King delivered the speech, give us the ballot, in which he linked voting rights, a cornerstone of American democracy, to Brown. King said, quote, give us the ballot and we will fill our legislative halls with men of goodwill and send to the sacred halls of Congress men who will not sign a Southern Manifesto of Just, a Southern Manifesto because of their devotion to the Manifesto of Justice. Give us the ballot and we will quietly and nonviolently, without rancor or bitterness, implement the Supreme Court's decision of May 17, 1954. But this moment of unity, this moment of celebrating Brown, transformed into a moment of contestation between civil rights elites. The prayer pilgrimage was the largest civil rights march in American history at that time. There were 25,000 people there. But March planners thought that there might be 50,000 people there. And so journalists began to write about why was the population of pilgrims so low. I'm going to read from a couple of African-American newspapers. Many in the leadership did a good job of dragging their feet in the march on Washington with the direct hope that the march would fail. It goes without saying that if the pilgrimage had failed, King, despite his success in the Montgomery bus boycott, would have had to go back to his 500-member church in Alabama and become just one of the thousands of Negro ministers who mean well. No one knew this better than the so-called Negro leadership, which King's sudden rise has challenged. Despite civil rights leaders' tepid support of King, the 28-year-old minister from Montgomery has emerged from the pilgrimage in Washington as the number one leader of 16 million Negroes in the United States. The article concluded, there's a saying that if you can't whip a man, you should join him. Negro leaders can't whip Martin L. King. The people are praying that they will be wise enough to join him. In 1957, King also travels to Ghana for Ghana's independence celebration. Ghana was the first sub-Saharan African country to receive its independence from a former European ruler. And King's attendance was not simply about symbolism, right, of a connection between transnational movements for racial equality. That was important, but King was also there for strategic purposes to fight for the battle of racial equality in the South. Since the founding of the SCLC in 1957, King, like many other civil rights leaders, had telegrammed both President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon requesting that the administration tour the South and speak out against massive resistance to Brown. The, the Eisenhower administration flatly refused King's in, uh, invitations and other leaders as well. But King heard that Nixon was going to Accra, to Ghana's independence celebrations as part of a goodwill tour of Africa. The idea for Nixon is that if we as a country are able to make inroads in decolonizing Ghana, the United States might be able to enlarge its sphere of influence in Africa. 
And so Accra transforms into a local battlefield in the global Cold War. King receives an invitation from Kwame Nkrumah, the prime minister of Ghana, and he travels more than 8,000 miles to attend Ghana's independence celebration. And King sees Richard Nixon at a cocktail party. And he flanks himself with reporters. He approaches Nixon and renews his request for a meeting at the White House to address massive resistance. And I'll read from an African-American newspaper at that time. The Reverend Martin Luther King, never, never one to miss a good opportunity, has made a personal face-to-face appeal here in Ghana to Vice President Nixon to come to the South and speak out about the conditions touching those citizens in the Deep South upon whom reprisal has been visited because of the school desegregation decision. Standing there in a new black Negro country, which at that moment was the showcase of democracy for the Western world, and with communist diplomats looking him right down his throat, Nixon had no other choice but to say that he would be happy to meet with King when they returned to the States. And he did just that. King accomplished his task, albeit on a different continent. Nixon invited King to the White House for a summit to talk about massive resistance. And so ironies flowed here. King was now first in line to discuss the implications of Brown with the Eisenhower administration. However, King had not participated in the Brown litigation. He was not a national NAACP official, and he had not been commissioned by Thurgood Marshall or Roy Wilkins to discuss the epic legal legal victory their organization had sacrificed so much to win. Meanwhile, the movement's elder statesmen would wait for more than 18 months for their White House meeting. These ironies renewed longstanding rivalries between movement elites. But in the process of attempting to shape Brown's future with his own hands, King had elevated his international reputation. The New York Amsterdam, which is only located several blocks away from the offices of Wilkins, Marshall, and Randolph, was so awed by King's style of racial diplomacy that the paper's editorial board anointed King as the chief spokesman for the race. Quote, for when Mr. Nixon sits down in conference with Reverend King, he will be at the conference table with the selected representatives of 16 million Negroes of America and millions of whites who share their concern for their problems. Reverend King will not go to Mr. Nixon as a self-appointed leader of a handful of people. He will not sit down with the vice president as a political figure supported by the Negro Democrats or the Negro Republicans. Nor will he be there as a Negro leader whom white people created and gave to Negro people. The editors then invoked the messianic imagery that has endured for more than a half a century. They crowned King prime minister of 60 million people. Cooper Vieren. In the summer of 1957, Daisy Bates, leader of the Little Rock Nine and the state president of the Arkansas NAACP, invited Dr. King to come to Little Rock. And national NAACP officials were again met. Why get King involved in our affairs at all? But Daisy Bates wanted to give her students something that perhaps Thurgood Marshall could not provide, nonviolent direct action training, that they might be hit and not hit back. 
that they might be the victim of slurs, but they would not return the personal attacks, that they might have the spiritual and psychological power to endure daily acts of racial subordination. And if you read the accounts of many of the nine, they credit Dr. King and his training in nonviolence for how they were able to get through the school year. Terrence Roberts, then a junior in 1957, said, Dr. Martin Luther King came to Little Rock in 1957 to meet with those of us who were headed to Central High. With him were Reverend Jim Lawson, a civil rights activist and minister, and Glenn Smiley, a proponent of nonviolence. King first lectured to us about the use of nonviolence as a moral response. He cautioned us that unless we were able to say with heartfelt conviction that we truly loved our enemies, nonviolence would not work. On the occasions in the halls of Central, I was a witness to the power of nonviolence as I stood maintaining eye contact with each student who confronted me with violent slaps, jabs, punches, kicks, and body blows. They bumped into sparks of humanity that the attacker could not simply override. He could not continue, he could not continue taking undue advantage of a person who refused to fight back. And when Ernest Green graduated, Ernest Green was given eight tickets for his graduation. He gave five to family. He gave one to a local minister who was incredibly supportive of he and his family. And of course, he gave one to Daisy Bates. There remained one ticket left. Ernest Green had been at the center of international headlines. There were many people who would be willing takers of this ticket. He could have invited Roy Wilkins. He could have invited Thurgood Marshall. He could have invited Wiley Branton, who was the NAACP's local counsel in Little Rock. But he invited Martin Luther King, who he cited as an inspiration for his activism in Little Rock's Central High School. And so we might think about the Little Rock Nine in different terms, that obviously these children are children of the litigation of the NAACP, but these students were also the philosophical heirs of King's brand of nonviolent direct action. And so you might understand, explain, and even teach Cooper Vieran very differently, that these students use King's tactics to give Brown meaning in Little Rock's public schools. And the generation of activists who would come of age during this period replicated King's strategy as he rose to global heights. They, like King, simultaneously fought for the future of U.S. constitutional law and the leadership of the race by making constitutional claims with their bodies. And so Brown not only revolutionized civil rights law, it, in an unexpected way, also radically restructured how activists debated the future of desegregation. The decision's logic gave racial entrepreneurs new ways to think about democratic legitimacy, new ways to frame their campaigns for racial reform, and new confidence that their campaigns were constitutional, morally right, and quintessentially American. It would also set into motion a pattern that would make structural litigation more difficult. Activists often got in front of lawyers and offered alternative ways to transform society that citizens without legal training or without NAACP approval might put their bodies on the lines to change U.S. constitutional law. Finally, King's willingness and determination to give Brown meaning in a host of southern spaces would change the trajectory of, of his career 
and transform the world. As King left, as King finished his 1956 speech on Brown, desegregation in the future, he left the world with a lofty refrain that would be forever enshrined in public memory. He closed this way. Freedom must ring from every mountainside. And yes, let it ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let it ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let it ring from every molehill in Mississippi, every mountain and hill in Alabama, from Stone Mountain in Georgia, from Lookout Mountain in Tennessee. Let freedom ring. And when that happens, the morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. Thank you.